my wife and I, we've been married for, for over 20 years now, and I've learned a few things about marriage. Uh, number one, I've learned my wife is right 99% of the time. In fact, my wife actually says she's correct 100% of the time, and she's probably right. So we'll change that. My wife and all the women said amen to that. Uh, listen, gentlemen, like God has given you, you know, when you think about your life, God has given you the Holy Spirit and your wife, and they both work in that way. Uh, uh, second thing I've learned is marriage is not 50-50. Marriage requires both of us to give 100%, especially in times uh, when one of us is struggling. We've got to be fully engaged, um, even if uh, we feel like the other's not meeting their needs. we got to jump in fully. And last thing I've learned in marriage over 20 years is my wife cannot keep gifts in my house. Now, like, I don't know about you, but my love language is gifts. Like, I love it. And so what happens every time around my birthday, around Christmas, Sam's like, I got this gift for you. And I go crazy in anticipation. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I'm like, like a witch in a broom factory. I'm like a dog in a bone factory. Like, I'm just going so excited. And I've had this crazy ability where I wear her down. And so, you know, she'll be like, I got this gift for you, and my birthday's still in four days, and I'll get her to give it to, to me early. Like, it's, anticipation is amazing. And my wife, over 20-plus years, has learned she can't keep gifts in her house because if she does, I'm going to get it early. Now, that might just be me. I don't know. There's something about gifts and, and something that you want, a trip, whatever, and the anticipation is just so exciting and overwhelming. But I think the same could also be true for, for trouble. The anticipation of trouble, whatever it happens to be, it's not amazing, but it's overwhelming. Anybody in here a worrier? Anybody in here prone to think ahead and think about the worst possible scenario? Anybody struggle with anxiety? There's a few of us in here. Uh, there's a guy by the name of uh, uh, Thomas Carlyle who illustrates this well. Thomas Carlyle was a, was a writer and historian and a philosopher in England. And, and in England, lived in London, he had one of those row houses. If you can picture like those houses that are tall, and they've, they've, their, their walls are connected to another house, and there's a bunch of rows of houses put together. And uh, 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 he was moved into this house, and he heard all the street noise and all this noise from his neighbors. And as he's trying to write, he's like, I can't do this. And so uh, Carlisle built a soundproof room in his house. So that way he could work in silence. The problem was one of his neighbors had a rooster. And this rooster was known for, um, can we say, vigorous self-expression? And uh, Carlisle protested to the neighbor. He's like, you got to do something about this rooster. You know, Kentucky Fried Chicken or something. And uh, the neighbor said, I don't, know, I don't know what your problem is. Like, this rooster only crows three times a night. Like, it's not that big of a deal. And this is what Carlisle said. He said, but if you only knew what I suffer while I'm waiting for the rooster to crow. Right? Some of us are just like that. We are great at borrowing trouble. In fact, some of us would say our spiritual gift is probably worry and anxiety, and it just is present in us. We're anticipating what could happen, and it leads us to being consumed with fear, stress. Sometimes leads us frozen because of that anxiety. 
Now, I know some of us struggle with worry and fear and anxiety, and some of us, we don't. Some of us, like, uh, it's not a struggle for us. Like, for me, I would say I'm more of an optimist. I'm a, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I'm always going to see the positive. Uh, I, I think maybe I have the, the spiritual gift of faith and hope. And, 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 uh, but while worry is not natural, for those of us that are more optimists, likely, what happens when you are tired and discouraged? It's amazing that even though some of us can be optimists, when we're tired and discouraged, it's amazing how worry then becomes a thing when we're beaten down, tired, exhausted. In fact, years ago, uh, church was in a season. Uh, you might call it a season of pruning in the church. And, and as a leader, man, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a hard season. I was discouraged. I was, I was, I was tired. It was, it, was, it was so hard. And, I, and it seemed like every time I got a phone call, somebody had a problem with me. And so we had some friends, and they called me up. And it was about this time of the year. They called me up and said, hey, Pastor Kevin, uh, we would like to, to meet with you tomorrow. And I'm like, uh, uh, okay, I guess, I guess we'll meet. And I will say, that night, I don't, I don't think I slept a wink. It was, it was horrible. My mind was, was going through the roof. What did I do wrong? Why are they mad at me? Why are they mad at the church? What are they going to say? Are they going to leave? What happened? What did I do wrong? My brain was working overtime all night long, of all the reasons they could be upset. Fortunately, when I met with them the next day, nothing was wrong. It was great. It was a good ending. This couple said, man, we've been coming to the church for a while. We love what God is doing. We love uh, the fact that our faith is growing, and we want to be baptized. That was exciting. But many of us can understand when you're in that season of discouragement, of tired, of exhaustion, man, worry is such a big deal. So how do we deal with our worry? How do I deal with our anxiety and our fear, especially when we're tired and discouraged? Do we have to carry that alone? Or does God have anything to say in those moments when we are anxious and fearful and discouraged? We've been in a series uh, in the book of Acts for the majority of this year, and it has been great. We're talking about how the early church became a movement that impacted everything around it, impacted the cities, impacted the schools, impacted the culture. And a little bit we're looking to say, how does Restoration Church become a movement? Not just an institution. Churches are, are so known as being institutions, places where you come for religious services, and you put some money in the offering, and you feel good about yourself, and you go on your way, and that's all it is. But I think as Restoration, we desire to be a movement that impacts our city, that impacts us, people all around us, impacts us. I, don't, I just made up a word. How do we become a movement? And so we're studying the book of Acts, trying to say, what do we learn from this early church that we can take away from? And as we've been studying the book of Acts, we've seen the apostle Paul. Man, Paul's kind of like this super apostle, right? He's kind of like this, this amazing guy. I mean, he's faced constant persecution and rejection. I mean, and beatings and sufferings and things that we can't even imagine. Yet week after week, we see Paul continuing to preach the gospel, continuing to plant churches, uh, continuing just to do the work of the ministry. The guy is, is a machine. But Acts chapter 18, we see a different side of Paul. We see Paul not as a super apostle. We see Paul as a human being much like us. We're going to see him discouraged, struggling with fear and anxiety and doubt and discouragement. And Acts chapter 18 is where God is going to give some encouragement to Paul, as well as to us, that when we are discouraged and when we are worried and when we're anxious and fearful, 
Listen, God offers us hope through the promises of his presence, his protection, and his purposes in our lives. A little bit recap from where we were last week. Remember, Paul was before these philosophers in Athens. He's, he's before the philosophers. He's before the philosophers, and he's uh, contextualizing the gospel. It was a great lesson for us on how we take the gospel to apply it to our culture's needs and worries and fears and connect it so people can understand who Jesus is and what he's uh, done for them. And we saw last week at the end of that, there was mixed results. There was a few people who believed in the Lord Jesus because of Paul's message in Athens, but there was a lot more people who rejected him, who ridiculed him, who mocked him. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. It says, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, Corinth was a powerful city in the ancient world. Because of its location on the Mediterranean Sea, like all of the trade for the Roman Empire came through Corinth, for the Greek Empire. It was a center of wealth and power. I mean, it's a powerful city. But with all that power and wealth in the city, uh, it came, um, can we call them self-indulgences? This was a city... Uh, that would have been known as maybe like Sin City in the ancient world. I mean, anything, anything you want, anything you could imagine, if you had a little bit of money, you could get. It was a pretty broken, evil city. In fact, uh, each night, uh, it is said that there's a thousand prostitutes who descended upon the city to worship the god Aphrodite. This is not an easy city for Paul to be coming into to want to plant a church. And it says in verse 2 that... He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who'd recently came to Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them. Verse 3, because they were of the same trade. And he stayed with them because they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. There'd been this little anti-Semitic stir in Rome where uh, the Romans kicked out uh, uh, all of the, the Jews. And so Aquila and Priscilla, uh, they have this tent-making business, and they're kicked out of Rome, and they go into Corinth, and they continue their business of tent-making or, or leather-working, depending on how you look at that. And somehow, Priscilla and Aquila, they became Christians. And somehow, they became connected to, to Paul. We don't know which came first, but regardless, Paul gets to Corinth, and he finds them, and he starts staying with them because they build tents together, and they work with leather together. And their, their, their pattern was they would work in the week, they'd work in the, the tent-making business, and on Sundays, they'd go to the synagogue, and they would preach the gospel of Jesus, trying to convince people to, to join him. Paul and Achilles and uh, Priscilla became close friends. In fact, in uh, the last chapter of the book of Romans, Paul says, he describes Aquila and Priscilla as his fellow workers, people who risk their neck for his life. So they're pretty significant people in Paul's life. Verse 5, it says, Silas and Timothy, they came and joined them in Corinth. And when they came, they brought some sort of financial gift. And it says that Paul was able to no longer have to build tents, but now he could focus on the ministry full time. And so this is where the context is. Paul's devoting his time to ministry. And verse 6, we're going to see some of this discouragement begin to creep in. It says, while he was preaching the gospel, they opposed and reviled him. And he shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, and now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. I read that kind of like a toddler. You know, toddler's like, well, give me my toys. I'm taking my toys, and I'm going to go home, and and you can't play with me anymore. Well, 
This is the humanity of, humanity of Paul. Paul's been preaching the gospel with just constant, constant opposition and rejection. And I just picture being Paul being tired and discouraged. And he's like, hey, here's the deal. I'm not responsible to make you believe. I'm not responsible for you to change your life by accepting Jesus. No, my job is to preach. And your job is to respond. You want to reject Jesus? That's on you. It's not on me. Paul says, I'm going to turn my attention elsewhere to people that might be more fruitful and receptive to the message. So it says that Paul is going to leave the synagogue and he goes, he goes next door to a guy by the name of Titius Justice, uh, who was a worshiper of God. Literally, he goes next door to the synagogue. And here's what happened in verse 8. It says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and his whole household. And many Corinthians, upon hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Like, I, I read that, and I'm like, how awesome. Like, Paul's got to be encouraged. Here he is in Sin City. He's preaching, and people are believing. People are getting saved. People are getting baptized. How good is this? This is exciting. But it's not exciting to Paul. Paul's going to have some fear and some worry and discouragement creep in. I mean, do you see it in the text? Probably not. But Paul wrote two letters to the Corinthians. First and second Corinthians are in our New Testament. And, and you might write in the margin of your Bible next to verse 8, you might write 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul, writing to the Corinthian in church later, he writes about this specific time when he was in the city. And he writes and says this, he says, When I came to you, I didn't come with lofty speech and wisdom. I came to you in weakness, with fear, and much trembling. And I'm looking at this, and I'm kind of like, okay, Paul, like, people are believing in Jesus. People are getting baptized. Like, Paul, you should be excited. You should be jazzed. Why are you fearful and worried and anxious and discouraged? Well, Paul can't help but say, man, what have happened in the last several cities when I preached the gospel? Every time Paul has been in these cities, he's preached the gospel, people are getting saved, people are believing in Jesus, and he's faced increased opposition. I mean, in fact, his missionary journey throughout Europe, like time and time again, his success leads to opposition. Chapter 14, chapter 14, he's in Lystra. Remember what happened in Lystra? He had that terrible beating where they literally beat him and they left him for dead. They left him for dead, took him outside of the city because they thought he was going to die. Why? Because he's preaching the gospel and people are getting saved. Chapter 16, he's in Philippi. What happened in Philippi? Paul's beaten, arrested, and wrongly thrown into prison. Chapter 17, he faced civil rejection in Thessalonica and Berea. He faced indifference and ridicule in Athens. And Paul is like, hey, every time, every time I'm, I'm preaching the gospel and there starts to be some people that are believing in Jesus, man, I'm going to get beat. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to be ridiculed and mocked. And all of a sudden, he becomes fearful. Because guess what's happening in Corinth? He's fearful. He's discouraged. He's anxious. Anxiety is through the roof. Like, I got to go through all of that again? And this is where, I love this because Paul, sometimes we view Paul as being this super saint, this guy that's so, you know, he, he's a, uh, an angel. But here we see his humanity, like us, 
prone to struggle with worry and fear, anxiety. But here's where I want to focus. Because God is going to answer Paul's fear and discouragement. And he's going to speak and speak encouragement to Paul as well as to us to show us that we can have hope despite the challenges we face. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, he said, Do not be afraid. Did you know that's the most common command in the Bible? Do not be afraid. In fact, if you read the King James Version, there are 365 times that, that, that God says, do not be afraid. There is one time for every day of the year. Do not be afraid. This command, do not be afraid, is a reminder. It's a, it's a reminder. Hey, you need to have faith in me. Rather than focusing on your circumstances that will leave you overwhelmed, rather than focusing on the, the things that are in front of you that are going to overwhelm you, do not be afraid means, hey, turn your attention from that and choose to look at me. Choose to, to, to focus on me. Don't be afraid, but by faith, look to me. I'm the sovereign God. Do not be afraid. Look to me, the one who created the heavens and the earth. Do not be afraid, but look at me, the one who parted the Red Sea. Do not be afraid, but look at me, who caused the walls of Jericho to come tumbling down. He's saying, do not be afraid, but look at me who has given sight to the blind, who's healed the sick, who, who raised Jesus from the dead. Do not be afraid, but, but look to me, the sovereign God. Because in me, you'll have hope and faith no matter what your circumstances are. It reminds me of the story of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath. All the soldiers are there, and Goliath is in front of them, and Goliath is like, hey, your God stinks. I'm, I'm so cool. And all the soldiers, all they can see is Goliath, and they're, they're afraid. And David comes in, and David doesn't see Goliath. David sees God that much bigger. That's faith. And that's what, what God is saying. Listen, Paul, don't be afraid. By faith, look to me, because I'm greater than whatever you're going to face, whatever challenges. So it says, do not be afraid. And then God's going to give Paul two promises. Two promises. The first promise is he promises his presence. He says in verse 9, I am with you. Those might be the most comforting words that we could ever hear. Like when we realize, like, like when we face things alone, man, that's when we get beaten down and discouraged. But if we know we're not alone, if we know somebody is with us, it's almost like we can endure anything. This is why I think Psalm 23 is such a powerful psalm. Psalm 23 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Listen, in your fear, in your struggle, in your anxiety, in your discouragement, listen, you're not alone. God has promised his presence. I am with you. You are not alone. How much greater to know, like, 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 whatever you're facing, man, God's with you in that. And not only does God promise his presence, he also promises his protection. Again, verse 9, I am with you. No one will attack you. God's saying, hey, guess what, Paul? I got your back. I got your back. 
You've been attacked previously and every city you've been in, but I've got you back. No one's going to hurt you in Corinth. In fact, it makes me think of a little sports analogy. Like, 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 again, I'm a sports guy. If you're not a sports guy, just put up with this analogy here. But oftentimes they say the most important uh, position on a football team is the quarterback, right? It's a quarterback. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Because if you take a great quarterback and put them behind a bad offensive line, guess what's going to happen? That quarterback's going to look like a fool. He's not going to have any time to find who to throw to. But if you take like a mediocre quarterback, like Brock Purdy, the San Francisco 49ers, he's not a good quarterback. But you put him behind a solid offensive line, that guy looks like he's amazing. Right? This is what God's telling Paul. God's like, listen, I'm your offensive line. I'm going to block for you. I'm going to run interference for you. I'm going to keep you safe. And God's protection doesn't mean we're always going to be free from difficulty. But the sovereign God says, listen, I'm with you. I got your back. I'm going to clear out the way for you. Like, how great to know that. How great to know that God is in front of us, clearing the path ahead of us. He is sovereign and in control. Not only here does God give these promises of his presence and his protection, he also is going to say, Paul, I've got a purpose for you. Now, most of us, we're like, God, I just want the promises, right? I want your presence. I want, that's all I want. I want your presence and your protection so I can go and do my own thing and live my own life. I mean, that's what we would say. But that's not necessarily how it works. God doesn't give his, his promise of his presence and protection so we can live our own life. Now, he gives us his, promise, his presence and protection, and it's often connected to his purpose. In fact, again, look at the text, verse 9. Paul says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Verse 10, for, for that reason, I'm with you and no one will harm you. You see the connection there? God's saying, listen, here's a purpose for you. You go on speaking. Don't be silent. Keep proclaiming the gospel. And because of that, for that reason, I'm going to be with you and no one's going to harm you. God says, Paul, I have a plan for you. My promise of of, of presence and protection, it's connected to my plan. That you're to keep on preaching. You're to keep on speaking. You're to keep proclaiming the kingdom of God. You know, it's it's funny. We're in Christian circles. We kind of like that idea of of a safe Christian life. A comfortable Christian life. The Christian life is not about playing it safe. No, God calls us for a purpose, for a reason, to live lives that require that we actually have to follow him. We have to say, God, not my will, but yours be done. God, here's what I'd rather do, but God, you have a purpose for me, and I'm going to step into that. It's going to require that I submit to the plans that you have for my life. A dependence not on ourselves, but a dependence on God. An obedience not to what we want, obedience to what God wants for us. So this is what God says to Paul. Paul's discouraged, he's anxious, he's fearful, and God says, here's what I got for you. I've got a purpose for you. I've got the promises of my protection and my presence. And it said in verse 10, at the end of, the, the end of verse 10, he said, I have many 
people in this city. Paul, God is saying, hey, there's fruitful ministry in front of you. This might be Sin City. This might be Corinth, the, the, the horrible, sinful city. But God's saying, listen, I've been working on people's hearts. There's some of the Corinthians, man, they're tired of the worldly pleasures that will never truly satisfy the longings of their heart. God says there's people in, in Corinth that are experiencing that emptiness of their soul that are tired of seeking false gods. He's got people that are feeling guilty because they're not seeking after him. God says, I've got people in the city that are ready to receive me as their savior. To encourage Paul, hey, there's work in front of you to do. You step into that purpose, God has people ready. Do you know, I believe the same thing is true for us. That just as God is at work in Corinth, preparing people to receive him, I believe God is at work right here in our broken, hard, sinful world. That God is at work in people's hearts and lives, drawing them to himself, drawing that they would know who he is. They would have a relationship with him to have the, 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 the hole in their heart filled by him. Yeah, God is saying to Paul, listen, I have many in this city. And I think God is saying to us in Yakima, I have many people in this city that are ready. God, you might be here today. It might be God who's brought you today. You might think, well, I came for this, I came for that, I came for the great jokes that that pastor tells because they're so funny and he's so handsome. Like maybe you thought that's why you came. But God's been drawing you, working in your life. And today is the opportunity you have to receive him. Well, the rest of the text, sure enough, persecution comes. The Jews, they arrest Paul. They bring him for the governor, uh, Gallio. And they charge him with inciting this illegal religion. Oh, hey, hey, rulers, this Paul guy, he's preaching another religion. He can't do that. But God is faithful. God promised his protection. And sure enough, this opposition backfired. Because they bring Paul before the governor. And the governor, he threw the, course, he threw the case out of court. He said, this man has done nothing wrong. He might be preaching about this Jesus, but we're just talking about words. He's done nothing wrong. And by dismissing this case, this actually gave validity to Paul and the church and the message of the gospel. It gave them the freedom that this governor said, hey, preaching the gospel, there's nothing wrong with this. It gave Paul and the church the freedom to proclaim the gospel, to preach about Jesus throughout the entire Roman Empire without it being deemed illegal. This gave validity to the gospel. And here's the cool part. Again, here's Paul, discouraged, anxious, fearful, afraid of what's going to come. And God gave him rest. The text said that Paul stayed in the city of Corinth for one and a half years. This was the longest stay he made in any of his missionary journeys. One and a half years, 18 months. And he got the promise of God's presence. He got the promise of God's protection. And then he saw God's protection in real life when the governor says, hey, you're safe to continue to preach the gospel. Reminds me of the verse when Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you, what will he give you? 
rest. And I see Paul having a year and a half in Corinth of rest, being able to experience the joy of the Lord, the peace, the presence, the protection of the Lord. Here's my summary. Here's a summary for this passage. In our discouragement, in our anxiety, in our fear, in our worry, God gives us hope. God gives us hope through his presence, through his protection, and through his purposes. So here's how we apply this. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know if you're one of those people that struggle with worry and discouragement and anxiety, or maybe you're one of those people that just happens when you're discouraged. The first question I have for you is, are you resting in God's promises? Are you resting in God's promises? See, his, the promise of his uh, presence and protection, they weren't just for Paul. They are consistent throughout Scripture. They're available to us. I mean, he promised, Matthew 28, he promised and said, I am with you to the end of the age. He says, I am with you. His, his, his presence is available to every one of us. He promised his protection. He promised that nothing in all creation, hear this, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love that he has for us. Like how amazing it is to know that he's promised us today his, his presence and his protection. The question is, it's there available to us. Will we accept it? Will we choose to, to believe and to live in the promises he's made to us? The promise is there. The question is, will you take it? I mean, I think there are some of us that we long for that security. We long for his presence and his protection. Yet, we're running away from the very presence of God, the very God who will give us what we're longing for. In fact, it reminds me of a story years ago. Uh, we lived on a house, and across the street, they were building these duplexes. And uh, the owner of the duplexes, he'd come and check on the project, and he had, this, he had this dog. I think it was a husky. It was just this big old dog. And it wasn't the most friendly dog. In fact, one day we're out there, and, and we had a little miniature dachshund, and that darn husky attacked our dachshund. Like, dumb dog. I'm like, what are you doing? This is my dog. And so one day, uh, after that, me and the kids were out playing in the front yard, and here comes the owner in his car. He pulls up, and he goes, chucks on, and he just lets his dog go, and his dog starts coming to the yard. My kids start getting afraid. And one of the kids starts screaming, Dad, Dad, and he runs away the other direction. I just say, hey, buddy, come here. Come here. I can't protect you if you run away from me. I can't be there for you if you run away from me. The safest place for you is right here with me. I think there are some of us that live our life just like that. For whatever reason, life has us scared, discouraged, anxious, overwhelmed. And we're running away from the very presence of the one who came to save you. The one who can protect you. The one who promised to be with you in the middle of whatever it is you're facing. The one who is greater than all of your fears. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this, 
Charles Spurgeon said, it is a fear of God that kills all the other fears in our hearts. Are you resting in the promises that God has? He's promised his presence to you. He's promised his protection to you. Will you choose to accept it and rest in those promises? Number two, are you living for the purposes that God has called you? Are you living for those purposes? Again, we've had this conversation about being a movement. A movement is made by people who are ready to be used by God, who are willing to say, God, I'm in. Let me ask you this. Is your commitment to Jesus actually causing you to risk anything? Is your faith in Jesus causing you to risk anything? Or is it just this thing where, hey, I just, you know, I have a little bit of Jesus in my life, but I kind of do my own thing, and I want this safe, easy, easy life for me. I'm not saying you have to become a martyr, but God calls us to circumstances that require us to trust in him and not in ourselves, to have to rely on him and not on ourselves. Is there any point in your life where you're like, hey, this circumstance, I have to trust in him. I have to lean on him to accomplish this. Are you putting yourself out there or are you just living for your easy life with a little religious candy coating on the outside? In fact, uh, again, uh, I don't know if anybody watched the University of Washington and Oregon football game yesterday. It was such a good game. Uh, I might have texted a guy after the game, and they're like, hey, did you see it? Here's what happened. And he's like, hey, thanks, jerk. I was watching. I was going to watch it later in the day. I'm like, sorry, dude. <laughs> Michael Penix is a quarterback for the University of Washington a guy who's had a rough couple years. He's had these uh, serious injuries that have kept him out of football for, for several years, and people are like, hey, this guy, you're washed up. You're not going to do anything. And he transfers to University of Washington and, and literally led his team to victory, a remarkable victory uh, yesterday. And he had an interview after the game. And I think about this. I think about any 22, 23-year-old young man who has just had the biggest game of his life, who's on national, tension, national, uh, national television, what an opportunity for him to promote himself. What an opportunity for him to say, man, I'm so awesome. I've got great leadership. And, you know, I'm such a good quarterback. Like, I should be the number one pick in the draft. Like, I should, uh, man, I, I'm amazing. Instead, Michael Penix took a risk. On national television, when they're interviewing him, how could you do this? And you know what he said? It was all God. I couldn't have done it without him. I'm blessed, and I thank God for all that he has carried me through. Are you and I willing to be used by God? It might scare you to have to speak up. It might scare you to have to say, hey, I see that you are not walking with God. I feel like we should have a conversation. Are you willing to take a risk for the kingdom of God? Do you believe that God has many people in the city that are ready to believe? In fact, I've got a friend of mine. <laughs> I had coffee here recently, and, and he's approaching retirement. And most guys thinking about retirement, they're like, man, how much golf can I play? How much travel can I do? And my friend, he said, you know what? <laughs> I don't want to just sit around. 
He said, I think my best days of my faith are ahead of me. I'm excited for retirement to see what God can do in me and through me. And again, what God told Paul is when you're living for my purposes, that's when you get the promise of my presence and my protection. Let me close with just a reminder that we say the church, we're desiring that we become a movement. A movement whose testimony is that God has saved us. And any of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, like we acknowledge, like it's a miracle that God has done that. God didn't save us because we're amazing or because we have so much to offer him. No, God saved us in spite of ourselves. It is a miracle of God's grace. We don't deserve it, but God chose to love us anyways. And you know what? God didn't choose to save you just to give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. God didn't save you for something. Rather, he saved you for something. For his plan, for your life. To make disciples. So what is the plan that you are living for? What is the next step that God is calling you to take? Maybe for you, it's trusting him for your salvation. Maybe you've never done so. Maybe the first step is simply to say, all right, Jesus, I've been wrestling through this for a while. Today, I'm willing to say, I believe. I will follow you. Maybe for you, it's investing your life in others right here at Restoration Church. Becoming a part of the body. Saying, I'm committed to this group of people to, to live life out, to invest, to pour into others right here. Maybe for you, that next step is finally stepping out and having that conversation with your friend, with that family member, with that coworker. Maybe for you, it's figuring out how to use your gifts for the kingdom of God and for God's glory. Whatever it is, I'm inviting you to step into that plan and watch as God begins to work all around you. And he turns the church from an institution into a movement. And watch as God gives you what we deepest long for, his presence and his protection. Let's pray.